Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. G'day, my name is Bruce Campbell, neurologist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and we're going to be doing an update on stroke treatment and management. So the outline of the talk is we'll talk about the acute stroke treatments, reperfusion with thrombolytics and endovascular thrombectomy and why acting fast matters. And then we'll talk about stroke prevention, particularly blood pressure as our main stroke risk factor, what's good enough and to targets, uh, atrial fibrillation, how hard to look and how to treat it, cholesterol, how intensive to go, and then also a little about TIA, transient ischemic attack, the optimal management. This is the message we want to have plastered in your waiting rooms and all the patients and their relatives to know about. So if the face is droopy, the arm's weak, the speech is slurred or incomprehensible, it's time to call Triple O. And the reason for Triple O is because that means the ambulance will take you to the most appropriate centre for that particular presentation that might be thrombolytic capable and may have telemedicine in rural areas. This is a, one of the most famous slides in stroke medicine. It's really the time is brain curve, and it tells us on the y-axis that you have the probability of an excellent outcome, getting back to all your usual activities. And as you can see, that probability is a lot higher for patients who are treated earlier rather than later. And the time window of four and a half hours comes from this graph. You can see the confidence intervals cross one just after four and a half hours. Now, there are some gaps in this graph. The first is that there is no information on the first hour after stroke onset, and that's been traditionally inaccessible to our treatments, but now we have mobile stroke units that can treat people in their driveway in the first hour after stroke. And we're yet to see exactly how beneficial that is, but it's certainly more effective than it is later on. With all of our systems of care, we're trying to get patients to hospital as quickly as possible, treat them as quickly as possible to get the maximum bang for buck out of this very powerful treatment. And we're also now able to extend beyond four and a half hours using imaging selection, which I'll come back to. So thrombectomy, pulling the clot out with a stent retrieval like this here, uh, is still very time critical. We have a window uh, for standard therapy of six hours and then extending that with imaging selection to 24 hours. But you can see there the number needed to treat rapidly increases as time passes. And for every four minutes delay uh, after reaching the emergency department to getting the artery open, one in 100 patients will have measurably more disability. Ischemic penumbra is the concept behind why acute stroke treatments work. It's the hibernating brain. Uh, you can see there a paper from 1977 where tissue ceases to function electrically at a certain reduction in cerebral blood flow, but then there's a, an area below that where you lose tissue, tissue viability. So it's that hibernating brain in the penumbra that we can restore blood flow and bring back to life. And in practical terms, when you block the middle cerebral artery, there are some areas of the brain that don't have any natural bypass vessels, a, a, a collateral vessels, uh, and those areas die very rapidly but most of the brain is often supplied quite well by collateral vessels. And these are leptomeningeal anastomoses over the surface of the brain uh, that come from the anterior and posterior cerebral if you block the middle cerebral artery. And that tissue contributes to the patient's functional deficit. So in this case, the patient would have left hemiparesis, hemianopia, inattention to the left-hand side of space but most of that at this stage is salvageable. And what happens over time is that ischemic core, the irreversibly injured tissue grows into the penumbra and then the patient still looks the same, they've got the same clinical deficit, but it's become irretrievably injured. 
So the artery needs to be opened quickly. We have a way of imaging that now in vivo, and that's CT perfusion, which we can do in any emergency department. And basically you give an injection of contrast, watch where it goes in the brain, where it's delayed, tells you where the collateral bypass vessels are supplying tissue, and where you see very little flow arrive is what's likely to be irreversibly injured. So in pink, we can estimate what's irreversibly injured. In green, we can estimate what's at risk and what's contributing to the patient's current deficit. And then we can make a decision about whether this patient still has brain to save. And this is the reason we can extend treatment for some patients beyond four and a half hours for thrombolytic and beyond six hours for thrombectomy. Uh, it's this imaging that tells us beyond time that this individual patient still has salvageable brain tissue, but the proportion with salvageable brain tissue drops off over time. It means we don't have any more time to spend. Uh, it's just for patients who, for instance, wake up with stroke or are found on the floor, unavoidably delayed to hospital. Some of them will still benefit using this imaging to select them. Now, thrombectomy really came of age in 2015 uh, with the zero to six hour trials, and then in 2018 with the six to 24 hour trials, uh, and thrombolysis beyond four and a half hours in 2019 with these papers, which were led out of the Melbourne group. Um, so we really now have this evidence based on imaging selection for extended window therapy. Mobile stroke units might seem like a boutique solution at the moment. There's only one in Australia and Melbourne, but there's plans for one in Sydney and a second in Melbourne and other places will gradually get them. And the reason they'll get them is this evidence that's now come from Berlin and also from America, where clearly the benefit of thrombolytics is much greater if you give it pre-hospital in the ambulance, simply because it's faster. You can cut 30, 40, 50 minutes off the time to thrombolysis by giving it outside the patient's home. Uh, and the benefit in magnitude is 10%, which is much the same as the benefit versus placebo, zero to three hours. So you can essentially double the effect of thrombolytic by giving it out on the road pre-hospital. Tenecteplase I've had quite a lot of interest in. It's a genetically modified alteplase. It has a longer half-life, which means we can give it as a bolus, uh, which is much more convenient than a bolus an hour-long infusion, particularly when you're transferring patients um, in the pre-hospital phase or between hospitals for clot retrieval. You only need one drip. You can be sure that you've given the dose and you don't have to worry about the infusion getting stopped. And uh, for a mobile stroke unit, you can give the dose and not have to worry about what extra drug you have to give when you arrive at the hospital. It has greater resistance to some of the inhibitors like PI-1, has greater fibrin specificity, it's reduced cost in some jurisdictions. And as I mentioned, it's a standard drug for ST elevation myocardial infarction with reduced systemic bleeding versus alteplase. So we've done some trials, extend IATNK in part two, uh, 500 patients where we showed a clinical benefit as well as a doubling in the reperfusion rate. And there are a lot of ongoing trials in this space, some of which we'll report uh, in the near future. Thrombectomy, pulling out the clot, came of age in 2015 with five trials all published in the New England Journal, which were basically a, a change from two or uh, three other trials published in 2013 that weren't successful because they selected patients based on an arterial occlusion, having a target for thrombectomy, and doing a more effective job of getting the artery open fast. Where can an interventionist get? Well, the internal carotid artery, the ICA, the M1, which is the first segment of the middle cerebral artery, or the proximal uh, second division where it's just bifurcated uh, is the main territory for these procedures. Uh, once you get more distal vessels, the territory at risk is smaller, TPA works better, so there's less differential versus standard treatment, and uh, the arteries are potentially um, at more risk if you're going to put a device up there of rupturing the artery. 
The basilar artery is not shown on that slide, but that has been a controversial area. We still do basilar thrombectomy, uh, even though the randomised data have been a little equivocal on that. Um, and as I mentioned, you can now do this up to 24 hours using imaging selection, but given the proportion eligible drops over time, there's still no time to waste. Something relevant for GPs is the first aid for stroke. If someone's having a stroke in front of you, there are a few things you should do and shouldn't do. And the first thing is to make sure your reception staff know the signs of stroke, the fast message, and if they recognise that uh, when patients call, they should redirect callers to triple R if it's appropriate. Uh, it's important not to give aspirin. I know there's that uh, for heart attack, but we can't tell if the stroke is due to a bleed or an ischemic stroke, um, and you don't want to give uh, aspirin to someone with an intracerebral haemorrhage. We also want to keep them nil by mouth because there is a risk of aspiration pneumonia. There's no need for supplemental oxygen unless they're hypoxic. And one of the useful things to establish is when the patient was last known to be well. That's one of the key pieces of information we need to know for treatment eligibility, particularly if it's within four and a half hours and they're in the standard thrombolytic window. That's very helpful to know. Are they taking any antithrombotics, particularly anticoagulants, and is there any recent bleeding? These are all things that are contraindications to thrombolytic. Driving after stroke is a common area uh, where people have issues. Uh, there is, according to the Austroads Guide, a four-week no-driving restriction for stroke and two weeks for TIA, uh, and that's longer for commercial drivers. But that really is something that applies if there's a residual deficit that could impair driving beyond that period. Um, that's when we should tell the patient to notify VicRoads and go through the medical review process, which may involve a neurologist report, maybe an OT driving assessment. There's no requirement for a doctor to notify VicRoads or the RTA locally unless you believe the patient is disregarding the instructions and placing themselves in the community at risk. And we do see people who have been notified to VicRoads or the RTA um, who don't have any residual deficit and then they get stuck with yearly medical reports uh, when they didn't really need that. Diagnosing TIA, um, TIA is a difficult diagnosis. It is based entirely on the history because by definition, if the patient still has symptoms when you see them, it's not a TIA. Um, so the sudden onset of a focal deficit, the average duration is about 10 minutes. If symptoms have improved but they're not 100% resolved, it is a stroke, not a TIA. Things like confusion are difficult. Uh, we need to try to distinguish a language disturbance, which is aphasia, or an inattention, uh, which is focal, versus a non-stroke cause like transient global amnesia, where the patient's behaving entirely normally, except that they can't lay down new memories. And they tend to ask the same question repetitively, but they know who they are, they know who their relatives are, they know um, how to do things. They can drive and perform tasks entirely normally during a transient global amnesia. Uh, and delirium, uh, where people have predominantly an intentional deficit, uh, can also be difficult to distinguish at times. Isolated vertigo is another challenging clinical presentation. On its own, if it purely is isolated, it's unlikely to be ischemic in origin, but we need to check the history carefully for any dysarthria, diplopia, numbness or weakness. In terms of investigations, brain imaging really is important. We want a non-contrast CT brain as a minimum. Uh, there are conditions that mimic stroke and TIA like amyloid angiopathy. You can see down the bottom there where the blue arrow is a focal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this can present just like a TIA, often with a little bit of migration in the symptoms, which in this case would be sensory down the left arm or leg. Um, and these patients can have recurrent episodes of that, uh, but you obviously would not give uh, antiplatelets for this condition. That's one of the reasons why we should get a CT in all these patients. Um, and you can also get tumours causing focal seizures that can sometimes mimic TIA. 
What we like to do in hospital a lot of the time is to do a diffusion MRI. And this demonstrates stroke in 30% of TIA. So you can see this patient here, 66-year-old male, two episodes of aphasia each lasted five minutes, and they're now entirely normal clinically. The CT brain's normal, but you do an MRI, and they've definitely had a stroke. And that means that they're a much higher risk of another event. And it tells you that the mechanism is definitely ischemic, whereas, as I said, TIA is a difficult diagnosis. And sometimes what we think is TIA is not an ischemic mechanism. So this tells you it definitely is, and hence there's a much higher risk of another ischemic stroke. We need to look at the carotids for stenosis. Now, most commonly in general practice, this is a carotid Doppler ultrasound, which is great. It's uh, radiation and contrast free. In hospitals, we would tend to reach for a CT angiogram from aortic arch to cerebral vertex because it gives us a lot more information, um, not just about the area that's relevant to carotid endarterectomy, but any dissection or atherosclerosis at other sites, intracranial stenosis and so on. So you'll see a lot of patients coming back from hospital having had a CT angiogram, which for us is a much better test, but a carotid Doppler will give you the answer to does this patient need an endarterectomy and you can see the abnormal side there with increased velocity and spectral broadening because there's a high-grade stenosis. Asymptomatic carotid stenosis does not require anything more than intensive medical therapy. It does not require an endarterectomy but you will see people getting asymptomatic carotids operated on uh, in common practice but it's not evidence-based. Uh, investigating high-risk mechanisms, also atrial fibrillation is something that we miss a lot of. Certainly feel the pulse and keep checking the pulse at every future visit. Uh, clinical surveillance for AF can be quite helpful. Get an ECG and anyone with a TIA, order a halter monitor, but it is only 24 hours and we do have a limited sensitivity for paroxysmal AF which comes and goes. So some, pays, some people are using smartwatches these days and some of them are getting better at detecting atrial fibrillation and for some people an implantable loop recorder is a good solution to really make sure that they do not have atrial fibrillation because that changes our management. The prevention of stroke and TIA is really targeted to the mechanism. So if you've got an atherosclerotic mechanism, then we need antiplatelets, high-dose statins. If you've got atrial fibrillation, we need anticoagulation. If you've got a patent frame in a valley and you're under the age of 60 and there's no other cause for stroke, we'll close that with a percutaneous device. And there are other causes like arterial dissection, which can be traumatic, and sometimes we can't find a traumatic incident. Uh, other cardioembolic events like a hypokinetic segment after a STEMI, vegetations and so on, and the rarities like vasculitis and thrombophilia. So the standard antithrombotic regimen after stroke and minor TIA is aspirin plus clopidogrel. And we want to start that as quickly as possible because the risk of a recurrent event is very front-loaded in the first week particularly. So we would load with 300 milligrams of aspirin, 300 milligrams of clopidogrel, and then 100 milligrams of aspirin ongoing, and 75 milligrams of uh, clopidogrel for three weeks. It has been tested for longer than that, and it doesn't help patients, and really the benefit is in that first three weeks, and beyond that you get more bleeding and not benefit of the dual antiplatelet, with some rare exceptions like intracranial atherosclerosis. Um, if patients in atrial fibrillation, we want to use an anticoagulant and the DOACs can start the same day if it's a TIA and if there's been a stroke then the stroke neurologist will generally wait 3 to 14 days depending on the size of the infarct and there's not a lot of evidence to guide us in that but we, we make a, an estimation of what the risk of hemorrhagic transformation is based on the size of the infarct and go with a um, period somewhere between 3 and 14 days after the stroke. The DOACs are suitable for pretty much all patients with AF unless they've got rheumatic mitral stenosis or a mechanical valve, uh, provided they've got sufficient renal function. 
And it's important to use the correct dose. One of the major causes of stroke I see is unanticoagulated AF or under-anticoagulated AF. People using the low dose of apixaban or dibigatran or Xarelto uh, when you really need to use the proper dose as per the product information. So we have this false logic in our minds that if we make someone bleed, that's our fault. Well, it's equally our fault if we uh, don't protect someone from an ischemic stroke. So the act of omission is just as bad and we really are exposing people to risk with no benefit if we don't anticoagulate them properly. The other thing, some people do have a genuine contraindication to uh, anticoagulation. I think we're often a little gun shy of anticoagulation and there are people who could have anticoagulation who are not because they've had one or two falls and that's really not a contraindication. But um, left atrial appendage occlusion is an option if you have a genuine contraindication to an anticoagulant. Cholesterol, we used to just put people on the highest dose of statin we could and stop measuring it, but there is now evidence from this study in uh, the New England Journal that targeting an LDL less than 1.8 does reduce recurrent stroke risk. So we would put someone on a high dose statin, you'll usually see 80 milligrams of atorvastatin or 40 milligrams of rosuvastatin, high dose, high potency. And then if the LDL is still over 1.8, we'd add azetamib. And we now have options like evolocumab, uh, which is rapatha, a monoclonal antibody to reduce LDL if we're really having difficulties getting the uh, target down or if the patient genuinely can't tolerate a statin. Blood pressure, as I mentioned, is the strongest risk factor for stroke and uh, both ischemic stroke and intracerebral hemorrhage. We want to target a systolic blood pressure consistently less than 140. I know patients often come and they've been rushing and we give them the benefit of the doubt that their blood pressure of 145 or 150 is just that they haven't been resting, but we want to be very careful about that because a number of people are undertreated for their blood pressure. Those of you aware of the SPRINT study showed that 120 was better than 140 for most vascular patients. It wasn't specific for stroke uh, and we have some stroke specific evidence that will come in future but uh, certainly a systolic consistently less than 140 and perhaps lower particularly after intracerebral hemorrhage we tend to push the blood pressure as low as we can without getting postural hypotension. The other thing to consider is the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor. There are some people, particularly with sleep disordered breathing, who will have spikes in blood pressure overnight that we won't be aware of unless we do actually check for that. So uh, if you've got any doubt about what the blood pressure control is across the course of the day, the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is now MBS subsidised. The general factors, obviously for all cardiovascular disease, we want to make sure people are doing well with their diet, uh, avoiding saturated fats, having a Mediterranean style diet with nuts, uh, exercising the 30 minute brisk walk a day is a good prescription, weight loss, uh, smoking cessation of course, and glycemic control. And I mentioned again, just sleep disordered breathing is something that uh, is worth thinking about. In terms of management for stroke, uh, minor stroke and TIA, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, whether it's in primary or tertiary care, doesn't matter. What matters is that you do the tests for high risk mechanisms quickly and that you start the medications quickly as well. And this is a study uh, from Oxford, the Express study, where they compared their standard method of referring back to a GP after the patient presented to an emergency department and it might take a month to get the tests and the uh, medication started and that was the purple line. And if they actually started the same day, check the carotids, check for AF, they reduce the risk of recurrent stroke by 80%. It is a very preventable condition. If you have a TIA, it's a fantastic opportunity to prevent a stroke, but we just need to do those key investigations, the carotid, the AF screening, the starting of the antiplatelets and the statin and the blood pressure control, uh, same day. 
So to conclude, reperfusion therapies with thrombolytics and endovascular thrombectomy have really transformed the outlook for patients with ischemic stroke. Uh, the treatments are time critical. The extended window treatment is great for those unavoidably delayed in presenting, but the proportion eligible for them is lower. So we still have time is brain and every minute counts. The prevention of stroke relies on knowledge of the stroke mechanism, so we need strict blood pressure control pretty much across the board, then appropriate antithrombotics. So it's early aspirin and clopidogrel if they're not in AF, it's an intensive search for atrial fibrillation and correctly dosed anticoagulation if AF is found. Uh, statins, maybe azetamib to target the LDL less than 1.8 and general cardiovascular lifestyle interventions. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.